It's an honor to welcome Ryan Beatty, the CEO of Beatty, a philanthropist, music enthusiast, proud husband, and father. Born and raised in Burnaby, his father, Keith Beatty, founded their company in 1954. It is now the largest private real estate developer and property manager in British Columbia. Ryan has been instrumental in Beatty's expansion into Alberta and establishing Beatty Living. In 2020, Ryan received the Order of British Columbia and just last week he was named Canadian Business Leader of the Year by the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Congratulations, Ryan. As part of his philanthropy work, Ryan and Beatty have contributed over $100 million to the BC Children's Hospital, several other regional hospitals, and social houses across our province. In 2011, Ryan and his father donated $22 million to Simon Fraser University, the largest single con contribution ever. And today, SFU Beatty boasts 30,000 alumni living in over 80 countries around the world. Ryan is also the founder of BD Luminaries, a social profit enterprise that removes barriers of entry for bright students to obtain a higher education. On today's show, we'll be discussing the importance of having a thriving industrial real estate sector in BC, why we still have a housing crisis, government policy, and Ryan's deep involvement in philanthropy. Ryan, thanks for taking the time to come onto Coastal Front today. Thank you. It's great being here. Now, Ryan, clearly your father was an incredibly successful man. Uh, but what's amazing is how you've been able to build BD well beyond your dad's achievements. And not most, you know, there's a lot of times family transitions going from one generation to the next. They don't have that kind of success. So maybe could you start by speaking to why you feel this has been such a successful transition from what your dad built to what you've been building today? Yeah, so much credit goes to him. You know, he started from nothing. Uh, worked so hard. The year I was born, he was broke because his accountant had stolen from him for the second time. So he was, he was going to go bankrupt. He flipped a coin, heads bankrupt, tails not. It was heads, but he still decided not to go bankrupt. He paid back all of his creditors and kept going. So imagine that you've built up this business and then boom, you get knocked down. He's got to start again. He was just a force to be reckoned with, tenacious when he had his mind set on something that nothing was going to get in his way. He was, he was a very intimidating figure. Growing up, he never had to spank me or just me. Just that look. I can see it right now. Just that look. And I'm like, okay, whatever you say, go. So he was pretty, uh, uh, pretty amazing. But, um, you know, the, the business meant so much to him. Like in his life, and, and he, you know, if he were here, he wouldn't object to this. Business was a priority. Then my mom and then family. He was quite singularly focused on the company that mattered uh, so much to him. So, um, you know, he built it up through the 70s. Uh, he, in, in the 50s and 60s, he was involved with residential construction and general contracting, but he became a real industrial developer, a contractor developer in the, in the 70s, started retaining ownership of properties. And that's when the growth really started uh, to happen. Um, I joined in 1992. Uh, working alongside my brother from 93, 92 to 99. And, you know, my dad was amazing, and, and I think other families could learn from this. He gave so much responsibility to me at a young age. I've seen other owners of businesses, you know, keep control and not allow the next generation to, you know, carry the reins and, and grow. 
he gave me like in my mid 20s authority to go out buy land do this do that now granted I wasn't screwing up so I think he had confidence in me but the more confidence he showed in me the more I would do and then that that energy just kept rolling I, I equate it to uh, the proverbial sort of baton passing like he's you know mid 60s at this time he's going around the track but not that fast I show up I'm like guns a blazing let's go he hands it off and off I go and I think again he would refer to it as the company, not in my company, Keith Beatty, the company. He put mm-hmm. it on a pedestal. He knew it wasn't just about him. It's his long-term employees. It's the tenants. It's the trades. And the fact that I cared as much or almost as much as he did about the business uh, meant so much to him that I was so keen to drive it forward. So huge credit to him for uh, creating the circumstances that allowed that progression to happen. Well, that's, that's a great overview in history. Um, but look, let's give you some credit, too, because uh, you did take the, the baton, so to speak, and you've grown BD. It's beyond what your dad uh, finished with, and you've got different segments that we're going to get into. Um, what's your sort of philosophy, or what do you, when you reflect on your career up to this point, why, why do you think you've been able to you know, carry this on and make it even bigger? What's, what's been the yeah, it's a, it's a great it? question, and it's, it's forums like this that actually allow you to think back and go, okay, what was really the driver? And I think there's a couple of things. There's this sort of first 15 years and maybe the last 15 years once I, I joined because I've been there for 30 years now. Mm-hmm. At first, I think a real driver for me was to make him proud. I knew how much the company meant to him and, you know, wanting to make your father proud of you was a real motivator. And I yeah. think that was a huge part of it. Maybe a little bit of insecurity because, you know, okay, there's Keith Beatty, but I want to sort of chart my own course and sort of prove my own worth. And insecurity can be a really good motivator sometimes. So I think those two things um, took place. And as I got older, maybe in like, you know, 2008, nine, seven in there, it's like that those things didn't matter to me as much. I felt very confident in my own sort of established what I had done. And then we took it again to another uh, level. And uh, for me, I think a big part of that is just the importance that I've placed on on relationships. I know it's it's something that people say all the time, but it, it's because it's it's true. I think I've been very good at if I've been very good at anything, it's surrounding myself with some key people who I love and trust, and two of them happen to be my best friends, and giving them the latitude in many respects that my dad gave to me. These are talented people. Give them authority to grow in um, instilling, you know, I instill these values and these principles into the company. I think relationships are so key to me, whether it's a subtrade or a tenant or uh, a mayor of a certain place. We, we measure our relationships at our company in decades and not, not years. I really, I look at everything that we do through the lens of reputation and long-term. We're gonna do this, it's not about making a short-term buck. Mm-hmm. How is the company viewed by doing this deal or this transaction is this customer are they going to be happy with us what's most important to me is when people employees or anyone looks at our name and they have a positive thing to say about it like right. okay that this i'm proud to work at that company or they're a good company for the community or whatever it is mm-hmm. so reputation has been a big driver for me and again having key people uh todd ewan who's president of our industrial division todd's my best friend he's absolutely incredible at what he does rob fiorvento on the bd living side also my best friend for 30 years and they've they've done remarkable work and people say oh you shouldn't work with your friends and for me it's been a wonderful experience yeah when you have total trust in the people around you uh it's worked out really well for us oh good for you that's 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 nice and good story 
Um, you've talked about industrial real estate. That's really kind of what your brand is known for. I know you're branching out of these other areas like BD Living. We're talking about BD Luminaries, but let's start with the industrial real estate. Now, uh, you run BC's largest industrial real estate company, um, and a lot of people don't really understand how important this industry is. I mean, we're all very familiar with residential real estate because we all live in a home. Yeah. And we're all familiar with like, you know, retail real estate because we go shopping and, you know, buy our groceries and whatnot or commercial. Yeah. But it's that industrial piece that I think a lot of people don't are not so familiar with this. So can you maybe start by helping those of us who don't work and live in the world of industrial real estate understand what like why is it important and and what yeah. does it do to the economy it's true a lot of people overlook it they just drive by and they see a warehouse they don't think twice about it right yeah. but the the entire economy and the region needs industrial it's the backbone uh, of everything distribution space when you go to the grocery store where does that come from it comes from a warehouse that's in surrey or langley or richmond or, or burnaby uh, tons of jobs tons of people are employed you know, on the industrial side, whether it's manufacturing space, light manufacturing, we have a lot more manufacturing, I think, in BC than people realize when I go through our tenant rosters. A lot of companies doing really cool things. Distribution space, warehousing, we, we're just finished, uh, are finishing a massive project for Amazon, for instance. So the uh, economic growth of the region is completely tied to industrial real estate. And as we run out of it, and we are running out of it, it will pose uh, a challenge and potential limits on our economic uh, growth because companies mm -hmm. that want to locate here need to have somewhere to, to be. So uh, given, especially with the housing crisis and the other pressures on our lands, in many cases industrial gets sort of second fatal. People don't think about it. Yeah. But from an employment standpoint, from a, from a tax base standpoint, the uh, amount of property taxes generated from industrial in relation to residential is huge like huge. it's a significant yeah. so it, it is so vital to the region and i think in recent years there's been a bit more attention paid to that i think the media started to cover it a little more than they did in the past and that's a good thing because yeah. people i think should realize how important it is to to a thriving economy yeah i agree yeah it's it's what i would describe as one of those industries that needs to exist yes it might not be very sexy i mean uh, probably for you it is uh, i think it's really interesting but uh i find it, it really sexy i remember it was, it was uh <laughs> We were doing a, a project for Patterson Group, and um, uh, Tom Monroe uh, was a fellow that worked for Patterson. I was we're sketching out a site plan for a 400,000 square foot building, and I'm getting all fired up. And he said, "Ryan, you're the only person I know who gets excited about industrial real estate." But it's it's when you grow up with it around the kitchen table, and it's what yeah. you, what you do. And yes, sure. we're involved in other areas, but admittedly, industrial is uh, my main passion because I think I know it fairly well. Um, yeah, so it's easy yeah. to get me excited. Yeah. yeah. Um, you made reference to uh, well, there's no there's no there's no new land being created. You made reference to sort of industrial real estate being pushed out. Now, if you, if you take a look at Yale Town as an example, a I mean, hundred years ago, I think you could find industrial uh, real estate down there. In it, you right. know, there used to be horse stables 125 years ago down yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so, how do you see this affecting? the economy or society sort of in a more this is a very this is a very philosophical question but like as you start to see uh, a lot of land being repurposed for living purposes and, and industrial being pushed out further and further do you see any problems arising from this yeah i think there's a little less of that now i think there's been a bit of that over the past maybe 20 30 years in the city of vancouver i look at these issues more regionally than yeah city, you know i think the media narrative 
cuts it up, oh, here's city of Vancouver, but all these issues I think are, are regional. Mm-hmm. And you know, the industrial market, for instance, in Richmond's pretty full right now. There's not much left in Richmond. The growth has been happening in Delta, Surrey, Langley, you're out to you know, Mission and uh, even Chilliwack now. Um, so the, the repurposing of some lands that are industrial for residential purposes can make sense in certain cases. Other cases, maybe not. We've got to protect these job-generating lands, and I think there's been a shift, uh, you know, in that way in the past mm-hmm. uh, past couple of years. Because um, there's been a lot of effort in that in that sort of sense when it comes to ALR ALR yes. ALR yeah. uh, in, uh, agricultural land. Hundred percent. But it doesn't seem to basically be the case when it comes to things but like the, industrial. The, the Metro Vancouver has this regional growth strategy, and they've taken steps. They understand how we are running low on industrial land, how crucial it is. So there, there are cases where maybe other, maybe there's a, you also can't have this one size fits all kind of blanket. You did that with the ALR. There's a lot of land in the ALR that belongs there, there's some that doesn't. And if you can't yeah. just blanket go, this is all industrial. Well, maybe that site is industrial, but it's right beside a rapid transit station. So perhaps right. we could maybe put that elsewhere. So these are competing interests uh, for lands. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the ALR because, you know, it's been in place now since the 70s, and it's obviously a very important thing, but it does uh, limit the amount of developable land there is for industrial and residential. And it's why, a big reason why I would argue that um, values for industrial in, in Metro Vancouver are much higher than say a Calgary or rents are far higher and land prices are far higher. So if a company is gonna locate, they look, okay, I wanna be in Vancouver, but mm, it's really expensive. So this is a tax yeah. on everybody. Uh, it really is, but it's, is it a tax that we're prepared to pay? And I think society has said, yes, it is. But I think there needs to be an awareness. When you do restrict supply like that, there is a consequence. Yeah. Uh, that's all. Yeah, okay, yeah. well said. In 2011, Ryan, you were pivotal in launching BD Living and transforming BD Development Group into simply BD. Maybe start by talking a bit about BD Living. Like, Why did you launch it? What is your vision for it today and in the future? Yeah, BD Living is our uh, residential arm. Um, I should have started it earlier than I did. It's interesting because our roots, again, my dad was a house builder in the, in the 50s and 60s. He built six P&E prize homes. So kind of going back oh, really? to our roots, yeah. Hmm. Um, but we have many sites, and this is actually a good sort of segue from your last question. We have a significant inventory of industrial property, lands, buildings, and in some cases, our sites are better serviced or suited to residential. And I was of the view, well, why would we sell this site to a residential developer? Let's just create a residential development division. We have you know, a lot of the same aptitudes, those same people, trade relationships. Trades, there's, a, yeah. there's a natural overlap there. Uh, I'm thrilled we did that, by the way, and so to take um, there's a project right now in Burnaby called Kin that'll be finishing, and the building's gonna be finishing this year. It's from a site my dad bought in 1982 that um, he developed 60,000 square feet on, three acre site. I did actually do my first leasing deal there in 1992. So here now we're taking down the building that we built and repurposing it to residential. Like that, go, that is so exciting for me to think yeah. our company has that sort of bandwidth. Um, so BD Living's done great. We're partners with uh, Anthem properties were just finished uh, the fifth tower at station square at metro town we're actually having a closing dinner tonight because that's been a sort of 12-year partnership with my wow. good friend eric carlson it's amazing multiple projects in coquitlam uh, west vancouver now uh, our big one coming up is uh, fraser mills in coquitlam we've just been approved for 5,000 units uh, in, in coquitlam it's going to take 20 years 
to build out. So BD Living is becoming more and more important. Mm-hmm. Our office for BD Living is downtown. Great uh, dynamic group. I'm really excited that we launched it. But quite frankly, I think we should have started earlier. Um, and to answer your question even more fully, we had a client uh, called Skeens Engineering in like 2005 or six, and we were building for them in Coquitlam. And they said, you know, Ryan, we have the site that we own at Pacific and Hornby. Love to give you first crack at it. It's an awesome high-rise site. Like, it's amazing. But I would know how to value it. Who's, I've got no one around me to assess what's this worth and how are we going to build it. It's an opportunity that, that we just had to pass by. Well, oh, I wish we could have been able to take advantage of that, right? Mm-hmm. So given our relationships and the sites we own, it was just it was a natural for us to get into that. I think we should have done it sooner. Yeah. But you learn, right? You learn from... I won't call it a mistake, but you learn yeah. from experiences like yeah. that. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's that, that's great, and congratulations for doing that. If you were to look at, uh, I don't know what measurement uh, you use or metric you use to measure yourselves by, I would assume maybe number of units built. Um, I'm curious to know since 2011, like how, how many homes have you, residences have you built, so to speak? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a great question. I don't have the exact number off the tip of my uh, tongue, but it's up words of 2000 2000 yeah 2000 yeah. units yeah and i think over the next you know 20 years we're probably going to average you know 400 to 600 a year kind yeah. of thing so yeah. we've got some awesome sites and a really exciting uh, team so well good for you for doing this i mean this also ties in as a good segue into talking about um y- you know affordable housing which we're going to get into uh, because we need entrepreneurs businesses like yours uh, quite candidly, my view, to take the risks of making these developments happen because uh, it doesn't come without risks. No. Right? No. And especially depending on the municipality you're building in. And I mean, hopefully we'll have some changes here, at least in Vancouver. And I know you look at this, you know, it's interesting. Bob Renning was on last week and he, he too said, this is a regional issue. Like yeah. we, can't, we can't just look at Vancouver. Yeah. You know, we've got to look at this more broadly. Um, before we get into that conversation, I want to just pivot for a minute and talk about the cultural differences between Canada and the United States. Your father was very successful, you're very successful. One of the reasons I started Coastal Front is because I, I've you know, been lucky enough to work with uh, lots of people like yourself in my sort of day-to-day you know, business practice of managing money who've been very successful and, and they have really great stories to tell. And I wanted the stories to be told because I think it gives it good inspiration for the young people around us who you know, want to learn how they can maybe be successful in their own way. But it's also because I look at the difference between what I see in the States. When you yeah. look at the States, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, they almost like, they, they, they turn uh, success stories into like celebrity status. Yes. You look yes. at like Elon Musk or yeah. Yeah. Steve Jobs, the you know, Shark Tank, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. and then, but then here in Canada, I mean, one of the reasons I was really ex- excited to have Chip Wilson on last summer is because there's a guy who's been completely vilified. Yeah. And he's probably created more opportunities for women. Yes. And created more female millionaires. Yeah. Uh, and done more for the economy in this province, wow. in this city, than and anybody else. Yeah. So I guess my starting question is, why do you think we have this, like, sense to want to vilify in Canada, especially out here in the West Coast? That, you know, if you were in the States, maybe you'd be on Shark Tank, right? Yeah. Um, but I hear, what, what do you, yeah, what's your I, you sense know, it's, of that? I'm glad you raised it. I yeah. think about it all the time and, uh, and I don't have an answer, but there's no question that the people I know when someone's successful, there's seems to be always someone who's taking a shot at them or a negative way. You think someone like Chip and how through him and his team, 
and his family and the ingenuity and the brains and the risk and, and look at look at the result and, and how everybody in our community benefits from that. This should be celebrated and welcomed, but it, there's yeah. always someone there. And I don't know if that's um, a way that Canadians want to be different than the U.S. or it's something that comes from our, our history. I'm not sure, but it, on the positive side, I think it does keep people humble. But at the same time, I think we do need to celebrate risk-taking and success. And people often will look at the results, but not understanding, as you said earlier, these projects carry a ton of risk. You're putting a, you're borrowing a lot of money, you're putting a lot of money in on the hopes that something's gonna work. And if things go well, they'll say they'll take a shot at you. If things don't go well, oh yeah, you, you sort of get dismissed. So I don't have the answer mm -hmm. for you, but I'm really glad that you uh, take the time to to celebrate these stories, because I think it's important for our community. Yeah, and uh, I can definitely say, you use the word humble, every single, uh, successful entrepreneur I brought in on the studio here in the last four years, they're all very, very humble. Like they, they don't come in here being boastful. So th that's, I think, one thing I like to highlight to people I talk to and why I do this is to point out that like you can be successful and humble at the same time. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to be a boastful individual. You don't. Ha I mean, your, you know, your results going to speak for themselves. Well, perhaps maybe this is a way that and that Canadians like we try to keep people's egos in check like I, yeah you know the americans can be so you know we know that they can be like and i love that i i, yeah. I to be honest with you i think about a lot i spend a lot of time in the states i think canadians need to be a little bit more like americans just a little and americans need to be a bit more like canadians <laughs> somewhere in the middle yeah is the answer yeah dynamic entrepreneurial zeal but a strong social conscience and sort of taking care of your fellow person i think the answer yeah. lies somewhere in between but yeah. reminds me of uh i'm a huge youtube fan and um, I've had the good fortune of meeting Bono several times through our involvement with the One campaign. I've seen you two perform in Ireland and to watch them perform and they don't take anything for granted. Their, their own audience there is quite, you know, okay, whatever you've done for me lately. They're not like, oh, you're Bono. They don't, the whole celebrity thing, they don't buy into it. And yeah. it, I think it's helped keep the band and everyone around them again in that modest, humble state. They're still trying to prove themselves even though they've been doing yeah. it for 40 years. So maybe there's a bit of good in that, as long as it doesn't go too far, to keeping people uh, from getting from their heads getting too big. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. well said. Rattling Hum, remember that uh, was one of the very first uh, music documentaries, and you see That's tons right. of them on Netflix now, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. great, great band. Yeah. Um, okay, Ryan, uh, I'd like to ask you uh, more along the lines around you know companies in Vancouver, success, um, we saw, we've seen different times in which BC has lost headquarters to places like Calgary and Alberta. Do you feel like we need more headquartered companies here in BC? Do you support the idea, you mentioned Amazon earlier, like of having big tech come in here and, you know, there's a, there's an argument to be said that the, the one downside to having a company like Amazon come in is they, they, they suck up all the talent for tech that don't allow small tech companies to thrive. But then there's the other side of the argument, which is, well, they spin off a lot of other businesses. What's your take on, you know, headquartered companies in BC and, and building, you know, being a, a, a BC being a, a business friendly yeah. province? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, first of all, I think in the investment of, of large tech companies and, and the jobs that are generated and the incomes are wonderful and really good for the region. So I think that's that's a, that's a given. Ideally, you'd have more head offices, 100%, but I don't think you're gonna get them between Toronto and between Calgary and the different tax regimes and, and what have you. So I don't know if we're gonna get that, but 100% when you've got 
large uh, companies coming to town wanting to employ people and investing their uh, ingenuity and their capital in our region without foreign investment, without investment generally, and this is one area where Canada, quite frankly, has really fallen down. Like our private sector investment has really suffered. And mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the big part of the reason why our productivity is lagging, why our economic growth, which is meager at best, and I don't even look at the economic growth number, I look at economic growth per capita. We have all this immigration, which is great, and then you're gonna still just eke out. So the average Canadian needs to understand that uh, prosperity comes from productivity, investment. Uh, so any time we have that, I think it's a good thing. Can it cause issues with housing? Well, sure, demand for housing goes up. The market should be then able to supply it. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, in, in a minute. But uh, I'm, I think it's wonderful when we, when we get these companies to come to, to Vancouver. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. Ryan, that's a great segue into uh, you know, housing. So Canada's overnight rate is now at 4.25%, the highest since 2008. Average five-year fixed-term mortgage now is north of 6%. Um, and so we've obviously seen housing cool off now um, and prices have come down a little bit, but affordability has been offset by these much higher borrowing costs for the average, you know, average Canadians. So, you know, how do young people, how are they going to um, get ahead here? Like what is your, what's your, what's your outlook on getting affordable housing available for, uh, you know, younger working people, families that want to uh, get into the real estate market. Yeah, it's a huge issue. I, I think there's no question about it, particularly younger people, because the, the, unless they have, uh, you know, uh, the massive deposit that they need, they can't get into the market. So you're going to see more and more renting. I personally actually don't have any issue with that. I think from a lot of people, renting is the way to, to go. Mm -hmm. uh, they can take that capital as they build it up and probably invest it uh, better elsewhere. Um, but at the same time, it's a dream of a lot of people uh, to own. And this is a major challenge. It's a major challenge for, for governments. Uh, many cases, and you're seeing this, that the, peop the younger people that are getting into the market, they have the bank of mom and dad that are helping them out and using the equity that they've been able to get. But not, a lot of people aren't so lucky, quite frankly, shouldn't have to rely on that to get in. So government's going to have to come up with some creative solutions, which they started to do. Then they get worried because then the, the, then the uh, professors say, oh, well, that's going to stoke demand. Well, okay, so what? It stokes demand. If we're supplying, you know, price sends a signal to the market, then we're supposed to respond with supply. It's a huge issue with, between the generations. And I think um, you, you have now political leaders who are really turning their attention to this and coming up with more creative and innovative solutions to the and it's there's no one size fits all answer all i can tell you is that we have to uh, come up with things because young people should be afforded the same opportunity to own a home that their parents and grandparents were yeah. i think it's fundamental yeah i agree um i'm a free market capitalist i'm a big believer in it that uh government's role should be to um set a set of guidelines or rules from regulations for say for example i work in financial services set up a set of guidelines on how we conduct ourselves with the investing public so that you don't have scams and frauds and people are not taken advantage of right but beyond that i i believe that um like step aside and let the free market figure its way out i mean like if there is a if there is a, a shortage of supply like i'm a big believer in just simple supply and demand theory that's right are you on the same page i i i'm totally on the same page and again you've seen in the last couple of years where, where there's this controversy between supply and not supply and by the way i don't understand the people who are against 
more supply. Let's just say, well, if we happen to be wrong with this, what's the downside to more supply? It creates a ton of jobs, there's more activity, and the people who are putting up this housing, developer, what have you, they're the ones taking the risk. So yeah. I don't see the downside in supply. And if you actually follow the logic, then you could say, well, what if we took 100,000 units of housing out of the marketplace now and created industrial instead? Would that have a negative impact on affordability? Of course it would. So I think that ship hopefully has sailed. I think what we have to say, though, is that supply is a critical part, but I don't think it's the only part because like anything else, even if land were free now and you're building a high rise, the cost, the number you need as a developer with free land would, would be an amount that for a lot of people is still unaffordable, right? right? So I think there's a role for government and housing societies to take and, and you know lands that are underutilized in particular and create housing for people who otherwise can't afford it. You think about a car, right? Everyone should, let's say everyone has to have a car. Well, there's a certain cost it, to, it is to actually build that car and you can create as much as you want. Some of that will filter down to other people, but other, others won't. So I think you have to look at it from a multi-pronged perspective, but mm -hmm. 100% supply has been artificially constrained. There was a great um, uh, Bank of Nova Scotia study on this three or four months ago. I think it was quite pivotal. It used the data to prove what we already know that there's a housing shortage and you know there's multiple reasons why that is and i don't know if you want me to get into them but um there is no question that price sends a signal to the market the market has to be able to respond but when it can't because it takes too long to get projects through a city hall because there's only a certain number of people or you have all this land look at the vancouver the percentage of the city of vancouver itself that is single family homes doesn't make any sense right so politicians understandably they want to get reelected or concerned about character of the neighborhood what this no way in the world we can't have it both ways you have a, one of the best cities in the world people are going to continue to want to live here okay that in and of itself is going to create an affordability issue you're not utilizing your land properly and then you hear like I, I live in west vancouver there's a site on the corner and there's this house and someone had this idea of creating like a interesting funky building with like six or seven units i thought it was brilliant it's this missing middle and yet, oh, the neighborhood up in arms, flipping, oh, the developer's going to make money. No, it, to the extent there's upside in the zoning, the, the city uh, can take that and maybe take those funds and invest in mm -hmm. other housing. And we've had a disconnect between provincial governments. This is why David Eby, and I really applaud him for his uh, talk and getting a bit tougher with some of these uh, municipalities. You've got sites that are uh, right on rapid transit, and a certain municipality or city is not approving high residency there. This is... Crazy, like this yeah. is this is uh, absolutely wrong. Um, uh, I lost my train of yeah. thought. But uh, the, there's important um, uh, leadership required at the government level to get more housing into the system. Yeah, well, that's really well said. And you know, speaking about David, David's been he's a, he's a friend of mine. He's been on uh, post uh, coastal front twice. Uh, now he's premier, and it, since he's become premier, he has made eight separate announcements around housing. This latest one he announced on Monday, which is a kind of um, expansion on what he'd already brought up, uh, I guess, what, two or three months ago, I really like. Basically, he's saying to municipalities in a soft way, not yet in a hard, you know, he's taking the carrot versus the stick approach right now, which yeah. is you need to set your own housing, you know, criteria. Yeah. And, and, and you have to give that to us as the province. Yeah. And you need to hit those targets. Yeah. And if you don't hit those targets, then we're going to help you, help you, yeah. you know, uh, do it. But he's also come out earlier, before he was premier, saying that, like, he's open to the idea of superseding these municipal governments if they're not going to approve projects yeah. fast enough. Yeah. Uh, I know we're talking regional, but, you know, we are in Vancouver, and now we have also a new mayor 
think the voters spoke. Can we loud. come back to that for a second? Yeah, I sure. Just want to say, I think it's great. And we've said for years, and again, one of the sites that we have that's right on a SkyTrain station, and there's like no high rise, and it doesn't make any any sense to me. And we've said for the longest time, it's going to take a senior level of government to tell the municipalities with respect, because a lot of them are great. A lot of them have, have really yeah. done their share when it comes to housing file, 100%. Others haven't, but it's going to take a senior level of government to be a bit strong, and that's leadership, and that is part of what it's going to take. But there's, there's, there are so many uh, aspects to this. There's another uh, city, again, you, you, when you look at the lands that we have and the ability to densify in certain cases, the uptick there that a lot of these jurisdictions actually collect in terms of fees and, and CACs is significant, but they are not the level of government that's responsible for housing, so they get to take those funds. Those funds should be used yeah. to, there's so much wealth that has been created. Isn't that a natural place to source that capital and build housing, particularly on government-owned lands? There are so many sites that right. you drive by, whether you know the BCIT, they're great, they're going to redo their campus. You drive by Willington and Mosscroft, there's all this great land. Like, why is there not student housing on this? Yeah. Why, why, why? And it's a bit frustrating, but I feel that the tide is starting to turn in that direction. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I think- No, no, that's great, I agree. Um, with these various announcements today, we talked about this latest one, which is basically setting targets for municipalities that they have to set themselves and then adhering to them. Um, that, or are there any other announcements that David has recently uh, come up with, or Ravi Kolon, that you're like, yeah, I like it, or any that you could be critical of? You're like, nah, that's not really going to do much. No, it's not gonna move this, the, the, the one the other day where they're trying to coordinate because they understand that a lot of these projects, a lot of social housing projects, have been delayed by bureaucracy in Victoria and throughout the provincial government. They're looking at ways of streamlining that to get the housing done sooner. So they, they seem to have a pretty good grasp of the issues and the fact that they're on it is uh, is a great thing. But you know, again, go back to the municipal jurisdictions. They, they maybe need some help from the government too. They're, it's hard for them to find enough people to do the processing of the permitting. But for the longest time there, you had so much demand, so much demand, but some of the, the cities can only process so many applications. Right. I have the view, double the permit fees, hire more people. Right. Like demand is, is there. The, the extra time as a developer for another month of holding your site like the permit fees would be three times right. extra and you're still better still off. Better like, off yeah. We'll pay you more. I know they're having a hard time doing that, but if you pay enough people, bring people from the States or you know other Bob, countries. You know what right? Bob's solution was? He said, why don't we, for everybody that works in the uh, approval offices of City Hall, pay them a, a dollar a door and a bonus. Yeah. At the end of the year, yeah. so if they if they everyone every one of those employees gets one dollar for yes. every door that's approved. Oh, you know what? Incentivize. <laughs> like I'm all, all in favor of that. But you know what happened? And this is really important because we talk about supply and price increases and the like. And I'm not saying massive supply is going to lead to a price drop. But what it would have done and what it can do is temper these increases. So we yes. had a project seven or eight years ago. We went to market. We expected X dollars. Well, guess what? We had no competition because City Hall could only process so many things. Mm -hmm. We achieved a number that's a little better than what we thought. What does that mean? Any other developer goes, oh, they achieved this. Now land is worth this. It inflated the entire market. And again, this, these are artificial constructs mm -hmm. because not only do we restrict the supply of the sites, but we restrict how long it takes to process the applications. So a lot of this is 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 self-imposed. These are These are like unforced errors that mm -hmm. we as a community and as region levels of government need to come together on to solve. And I think that's starting to happen. Yeah. 
Ryan, I've talked to uh, a lot of uh, people who work in the development space. They work for, um, they're pretty senior people who work for companies like yours who've told me that, and now this is, of course, these are conversations before this latest election, that they've just basically, they're kind of exiting the Vancouver market, going to Burnaby, going to North Vancouver, going to Edmonton, because, and I love you, I love the term that um, uh, Chip Wilson gave me last summer when I interviewed him. He said, capital goes to where it's most loved, Yeah. right? And yeah. so if the money is more loved in Edmonton, that's where the capital will go. Is there any municipality in Metro Vancouver uh, that's very, uh, you know, pro-development and doing things differently than, say, like, if, if the, something maybe uh, our new mayor, Ken Sim, could learn from to go, yeah, you know what, New West or, you know, Langley uh, or Chilliwack is doing this. Like, yeah, they, these guys have got it figured oh, yeah. out. Yeah. What, what would be a, a, a uh, 100%. Which municipality is doing yeah, I'll, that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give um, uh, one uh, one industrial and maybe a two on the residential side. Yeah. Uh, some credit on this. So firstly, just on the industrial side, we do a lot of work in Delta. We have for 30 years. And you're talking about uh, administration and the government, no matter who's been in charge there, that really values industrial land, the tax base, the jobs and working with people in a cooperative way where you want to get the end result the same. It just makes our lives so much more enjoyable to be working as a team to have these successful projects. And, and so Delta has been wonderful on that side. Residentially, uh, Coquitlam has been great. They've got wonderful people at Coquitlam who are, again, approving a lot of projects, doing their part to deal with the housing crisis. They're great. Um, the rezoning process in Coquitlam is so much faster than some other jurisdictions and like well why don't you just look at how they do it instead of some antiquated okay first reading and wait this many weeks and this work no it's compressed right because they someone is saying okay we want to get things done faster here so i think it comes from the top Coquitlam's great burnaby's done a heck of a job in again providing a ton of housing to the region you look at Vancouver, take an area of Vancouver and look at Burnaby and um, the, the amount of density along the stations in, mm -hmm. in Burnaby, it's amazing. Yeah, you can so almost tell where the border you, is. You tell where the border is. Yeah. Why is that? Right? That's crazy. Again, these are artificial constructs. The yeah. Housing is a regional issue and you find in the media, there's a city of Vancouver, city, what is it, the city itself? Like I grew up in Burnaby yeah. and I, quite frankly, I'm like, I couldn't afford to live in the city of Vancouver. My wife and I are like, okay, we're going to live like, we lived in, in, in Port Moody and Coquitlam and out, out in that area, which is wonderful, amazing, but th this right to live in the city of, of Vancouver, it's not a city of Vancouver issue, it's a regional issue. Yeah. And so what someone's paying for a townhouse in Surrey or in New Westminster and, and their monthly rent, that's what matters. Yeah. You know, if someone has to get on yeah. a SkyTrain and they're at work in 15, 20 minutes, like who cares? There's no divine right to live in the city of Vancouver. Yeah. It seems really weird to agree. me. Um, I almost wonder if it'd be better for us to just amalgamate all these municipalities. You get rid of a whole bunch of uh, government jobs. You, 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 you basically fire probably a good you know, dozen mayors and city councillors. And now you've got, uh, uh, like I guess, like the GTA, right? Yeah, you've got like, a much more yeah. broader view of the yeah, housing it, problem. It's pretty rare to find uh, you know, politicians or people that are going to sort of create a structure like that that sort of eliminates the, their role. Again, that <laughs> would come to a senior level of government saying, hey. Yeah. And, and I do think uh, there's a limit to that amalgamation sort of thought, but there are probably jurisdictions in Metro Vancouver that should amalgamate. Uh, I just don't know where the leadership would come from to 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 do that, but yeah. um, uh, for sure, yeah. there's a lot of inefficiency and uh, and created. But I do think that we have the um, there's a bit more political will now, and people are starting to to get it. And quite frankly, 
someone who's complaining about housing affordability and then opposes uh, a zoning change in their neighborhood, I mean, I'm sorry, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. And it's going to take you know, leadership. And again, look, the city of Vancouver, all these single family homes. Can you imagine if you did row housing or multi-level you know, town? Density yeah. doesn't have to be a big concrete high rise. There's yeah. a million things to do. And you go down Kingsway, and I think this is starting to change. You drive down Kingsway in Vancouver and just the opportunity to, to revitalize and have you know, three, four-story rental above the commercial, there, there is so much potential density that can be had without disrupting, I don't yeah. think, neighborhoods that much. So. And I think that area around um, Queen Elizabeth Park, the Canby corridor there, yes. Yes. I mean, I think there's a great example of how a neighborhood's been transitioned in a really positive way. I mean, beautiful uh, gorgeous. condos. Yeah. Um, I know the Wall uh, Corporation did that development down on... Uh, is it Burrard Street that's heading towards Marple? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's some great examples uh, that you're talking 100%, 100%, about. 100%. Yeah. So. Campbell Heights uh, in, is that, that's in Surrey? Surrey, right? Yes, yes. Can you talk a little bit about Campbell Heights and where maybe the next wave of, uh, you know, sort of industrial development is and maybe speak to that before? Yeah, we, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, we've done a fair amount of work in Campbell Heights. Um, it's a site actually, Joe Siegel, um, and developed all the land around there in like probably around 20 years ago. We're like, we're looking on a map, like, where is this? It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we bought some land and started to develop. We've done several projects down there. And now you drive there and there's a ton of people working, lots of jobs, lots of big buildings. It's not, I don't think the best located cause it's not right on a highway, but we're so starved for land that people are like, okay, this is the, the place to be. We don't have, another sort of Campbell Heights. There's some, there's some additional lands around there that, that can be had. So I think that the region has recognized this. And so we are adding um, to that base there. And so you, I think you're going to see there isn't, how do I say this? It's not like you've got 400 acres out there that all of a sudden is going to go from a certain use to industrial. But around the edges, sites that are kind of in that gray zone, they're not residential, what can we do? The region understands they have to continue to add. I think we're going to be okay for the next you know, two, three, four, five years, but you start looking out five to 10, 15 years, you've got a problem. Like mm -hmm. unless some of the ALR lands that maybe marginal uh, farming sites come out, I'm not sure exactly what you do. Then they talk about, oh, densifying. Easier said than done. To densify industrial and build two-story warehouses that are 30 feet clear, right. first of all, costs a fortune, but it leads to column spacing down below that's quite inefficient. So unless you have one tenant that wants to take both levels, it hasn't proven itself yet to be a viable model. I think that day maybe we'll be forced into that. Mm -hmm. uh, but then again, it becomes more expensive. So if you're deciding to where you're going to have your business in Vancouver or Calgary at half the price. So this uh, limit, the, the land limits our economic development opportunities, but the cost as well will limit what companies will come to the market. So that, that un lack of affordability, I think, is a, a negative for the region overall. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to switch gears now, Ryan, and talk about philanthropy. Um, your family is obviously known for its success, but you're also very well known for what you and your dad have done for our, 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 uh, our community. Um, you, you contributed $100 million in, over the last decade to BC Children's Hospital, Ronald McDonald House, Burnaby Hospital, BCIT, several others. You've also contributed $22 million to SFU. Um, tell me what motivates you to be giving back so much. I mean, these are very large numbers. 
to be giving back so much money to the yeah, community. Yeah, I think for clarity, I think the hundred million dollars would include the fifty million dollars for media luminaries, the twenty-two for SFU, and and those uh, other organizations. Okay. It's actually probably well above a hundred now. Yeah. Um, the the motivator, I think, is uh, th- there are several. I mean, one, I just think it's the right thing to do. Um, there's a limit to what government can do. We already have, you know, uh, relatively, I think, to other countries in the world, uh, developed countries, very high taxes as it is. The, the, the higher you tax, the less economic activity you're going to have. So there's a gap there. I think it's a really significant role for private philanthropy because the, the needs are there, but also adding a bit of an entrepreneurial zeal to it, identifying areas that um, improvements can be made and measuring them and, and trying to exact a bit of a discipline there. But the motivation is to um, give back to a community that made the wealth generation possible to begin with right. and as a way to, to, to say thank you. And quite frankly, if we're, you know, I'm a big believer in capitalism and free markets, but I think people in society, it's important to see people who are have had success giving back. Mm-hmm. And if not, that can lead to understandably maybe a bit of resentment or frustration or kind of look at that yeah. person made this money what are they doing back so there's several um reasons for it and quite frankly it feels uh really good so yeah. i guess it's a bit selfish because i i um i thoroughly enjoy uh in in my heart uh how it feels to to help other people yeah yeah i'm sure it would uh now is there any one particular may not be the one the one that you wrote the biggest check to but is there any one particular uh, cause or I mean outside of, we're gonna get into luminaries in a minute but outside of that uh, or charity that you've donated to over your uh, last couple of decades that you're like yeah I really it could be something very grassroots that you really really like it really kind of warms your oh warms my, your heart yeah okay I'm, I'm gonna come to there's so there are so many I just want to give credit to uh, Joe Siegel who was a mentor who passed away last year Joe was uh, a huge inspiration for me philanthropically uh-huh. Peter Brown as well um, I've always sort of looked to my elders, my dad, and uh, for inspiration. Um, and there are so many great causes. I mean, we've been less so now because there's so many other people that they have on board. But Children's Hospital obviously does does incredible work. Yeah. Uh, we're really proud of our association with the the One campaign. Bono started One. One is an advocacy organization that that um, basically lobbies government for. Uh, foreign investment to eliminate uh, extreme poverty around the world, HIV, AIDS, what have you. The impact that one has had globally is huge, but we're really proud of our um, association in Canada. We're the benefactor in Canada for one. They've done you know, really incredible work. Um, Ronald McDonald House, Ronald McDonald House are uh, amazing. Our staff go twice a year to cook uh, dinners. We supported their capital campaign years ago, and, and we provide ongoing support. And I've told them the next time they go to raise uh, money, we're going to be there to, 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 they do incredible work. These families, mm-hmm. imagine coming, you live in Prince George and your, your son or daughter has cancer and they're at children's hospital. Like, where are they going to stay? Well, they've got somewhere to stay, right? Yeah. It's so important, the work mm-hmm. that they, they do. And we're really proud of that, um, uh, association. I could, if I yeah. looked at the list, I could, <laughs> I could go on. Yeah. There's so many, but it, 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 you know, it also, it also, I'm glad you asked this because, you know, I've been very fortunate. We've made a lot of money. I've got a great lifestyle. But one of the motivations for me, and I'm 54 now, to, to keep going and keep growing and keep driving is to help others. The more, the, the more success we have, the more we do, the, the more we can help the community. So mm-hmm. it's a real driver for me and for our employees as well. I think they're really proud to work for a company that cares so much about the community. That's what we're trying to Well, it's a great philosophy, Ryan. Uh, I'm glad that you speak about that because a lot of people who are maybe those ones that want to vilify 
the likes of you and, and other guests have had on the show see it maybe as a zero-sum game, but it's not. Like you, you, it's, this can be a win-win all around. Like you can be successful, you can create more wealth for yourself, but you can. But as a, a byproduct from that, you're creating jobs, you're adding to the tax base, you're able to have this extra capital, be able to donate back into the society. It's like it is a win all the way around. Hundred percent, and those funds are coming right back into this community. Full stop, 100%. And, and we're going to continue to do it. I've got to say that the tax system is quite interesting because, as you know, when you donate shares of a publicly traded company, then you avoid the capital gain, you get your donation. Okay, that's great. But that same benefit isn't there for real estate or for pr selling private businesses. Oh, it's not? No. And Stephen Harper, before he left office, wanted to you know, equalize those things. So if someone who doesn't happen to be in the public markets has mm -hmm. a private business or they own real estate they've owned for a long time, they want to you know, sell your real estate and then give those proceeds to charity, you can avoid the gain. That That's, could unleash that, a huge amount of The, the of amount additional. of philanthropy that would be, the philanthropic dollars that would be generated from such a move would be absolutely ginormous. You've got right. clients, you know people who have owned yeah. real estate for a long time. It would unleash a wave of funds, I guarantee it. One of the first things that the Trudeau government did when they came to power was like, we're not putting that in, like forget it. And so those groups that are continuing to lobby for that, and while it could, in theory, cost the government a little bit, in many cases, people wouldn't be selling these assets. So I don't know how you even measure it, but the, there's no question that society would get way more out of it than is currently the case. And hopefully that change comes, and if it does, our philanthropic uh, initiatives will increase as a result. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really well said. Well, Ryan, I think this is a great segue into talking about BD Luminaries. I mean, this, the name itself is an awesome name. Did you come up with it yourself? I did not. Uh, uh, one of our, uh, our graphic designer, uh, Chris Neary, came up with it, um, along with Martina Mekova, the executive director. Actually, I think it was Martina's idea. So if she watches this for Martina, <laughs> I think it was you. Chris may have, so team effort, but probably Martina. Yeah, she's amazing. Well, well BD Luminaries, as I understand, is a, is a social profit enterprise that removes barriers for bright students from you know, advancing in their education. And to date, you've now awarded uh, 487 scholarships to these students. So maybe you can expand on my brief description. Tell us about BD Luminaries. What is it? And, and what caused you to kind of create? Yeah, great. No, thanks for asking. I'm really, I, I get excited every time we talk about it. So it's, BD Luminaries is a unique scholarship program that really targets students who have faced significant adversity, mainly financial, but it could be other family crises, other uh, adversity. They could be uh, relatively new to Canada and have had uh, some challenges um, adapting, you know, and the like. So uh, we started this, uh, we announced it on my 50th birthday almost five years ago, uh, Martina Mekov as our executive director. Um, I had come up with the idea when I was 48 thinking, okay, I'm going to be turning 50 soon. What's the next big thing? And I kept coming back to the SFU experience, which uh, the, the investment in BD school was really motivated to help students. I grew up in Burnaby in a real mixed neighborhood. And I worked, but I didn't really have to worry about funding to go to school. I had, had it relatively easy. A lot of my friends didn't. And I think, well, you know, it, it shouldn't be the case that uh, students who have, have the will and the desire and the work ethic and the brains, to they shouldn't have a barrier to, to go to school. Finan financing shouldn't be uh, a determining factor there. So what if we can help bridge that divide and provide that support 
particularly those who are facing significant adversity. So that was the idea. Mm -hmm. I talked to a lot of people before we uh, actually launched it, and the feedback was absolutely outstanding. But it wasn't just about the money. It's important to have mentorship. All the students have mentors. We have full-time okay. counselors. So if a student has an issue, they can call the counselor. You know, there's a wraparound support. We have peer-to-peer -peer network of students just sort of based on the YPO model. So our, our goal isn't just to here's cut a check, you're on your own. We want to provide a full level of, of service to help these students get all the way through. And our retention rate now is like 96%, which is very high for a scholarship program. Wow. Um, and our applications just opened for our uh, fifth cohort. Our first cohort are graduating uh, in May. Yeah. And it's just awesome to see. Like we, Every year we do an event with the parents and the students. And when we first started, I said, one day we're going to be in some auditorium. And there's going to be like hundreds of people. And now we're in the convention center. <laughs> and the parents come up and they're hugging you. And they're so appreciative of these opportunities. And you're taking these kids, some of them would make get other scholarships, but a lot of them, you know, might not qualify for other scholarships. They're not all AA plus yeah. students, you know, the A minus student, the B plus student who would be an A student if they weren't working a job to support their family because, you know, mom or dad's at home with, you know, five siblings. Like the right. stories, you read these applications, it's really uh, moving the, the challenges that some people have. And our job is to get in there and find them and say, look, we believe in you and uh, we're going to help you all the wow. way through. So applications just opened for our fifth cohort. I can't believe that that's even happening. And, uh, you know, we've got 500 applications. We have an amazing advisory board. We have an incredible um, uh, committee that, that uh, reviews all the applications. Universities Canada back east have been instrumental. They help re read all the essay applications. We have an entire infrastructure that has been um, just wonderful. I, I, it's going better than I ever could have imagined. Wow. Martina and the team are absolutely sensational. They love what they do. And we're always looking at ways of trying to improve it. So we added a, a single parent program where I was talking to different people, former Premier Christy Clark, I asked her, what do you think about this idea for BD Luminaries? And she said, great, but how about single parents, those who really want to go back to school, but they can't afford it. So we now have a single parent program, right? We've got a wow, program really that targets um, refugees, those who are in their 20s that have come to Canada, but they want to go back to school. So, And we're, we just recently announced a graduate program for some of our students that are graduating. If they've been involved in the luminaries community, we're going to look to see if we can support them in graduate school. So this is a, I look at it like a social profit business. It's a, it's a division of our company that provides societal dividends and benefits, not purely financial. And it's scalable, right? Yeah. You've got an incredible infrastructure. It's going really well. So it's a, it's a, a nice place for uh, future philanthropic um, sort of endeavors as we scale it up. So well, that's we're, a, that's we're really, a great we're really story, proud right? of it. It's, it, it's absolutely, I get the cards from the students and the notes. And, you know, one of the best days of the year is when we call the students to let them know they've been accepted into the program. And some of them we've done on, on video, especially during COVID. And I can still, like, remember some of them. You, you tell them and they the look on their faces that, that they've been chosen to be part of it. And it's not just the money and whatever. It's telling them, no, we've selected you. We want yeah. you as part of this. Yeah. That burst of self-esteem and the value. Yeah, you see so it amazing. in their face. It is absolutely priceless. It's yeah. one of the best things. And uh, we want more of it. We want to do more and uh, um, help others achieve these goals. Well, good for you. That's, a, that's an amazing story. I guess to bring it full circle, I ultimately would be, I think the ultimate would be to see some of these people coming and working at BD. Well, we've, uh, we've had a couple uh, interns already. Have you? And, and that's yeah. something I forgot to mention. I'm glad you raised yeah. that. We have an intern, create internship opportunities in a whole host of companies for 
these students. So many of them have been employed uh, throughout the summers in various companies that are affiliated now with the Luminaries yeah, program. Yeah. So, well, yeah, we'd love to get involved ourselves. We we, we hire on uh, interns uh, year, you know, around the year around the calendar year. Fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah we'll, I love we'll, supporting we'll young people. We'll follow up with you on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, BD has a motto which is built for good. Uh, you also mentioned last time uh, that we spoke when we were having our pre-podcast call um, that uh, with respect to BD Luminaries, it's um, you mentioned this just a moment ago, is, is run um, like a social profit, a social societal dividends. Um, can you maybe talk about this motto of built built for good? Like who, who came up with yeah. that and what's that meant for? Yeah, so now I've got it clear in my head. Chris Neary did come up with built for good and okay. he's our sort of graphic designer website guy. When we were doing a rebranding, and um, he came up with this built for, and I loved it right away. It's this double entendre. Actually, you could you could probably interpret it in three ways. But you know, from a pure construction standpoint, you've done it right. It's built for it's built for good. It's built well. You can stand. I want someone to look at our name and go, oh, I'm taken care of. Like like I'm in good hands. I've got nothing to worry about. So the, the motto is to convey that, but also built for good. Like built for the the benefit of society. Built for you know. The, the benefits to society built for um, all the right right reasons. So there's there's different ways of interpreting it. And so it's a bit of a, a play on words. It's a lot of fun, but I'm really uh, proud of it. I think it really expresses sort of our key value system, you know, okay. as well as we can, you know. Yeah, yeah. good. Um, so we're beginning of 2023. Uh, you're going to be celebrating your 55th birthday, is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's November. So November. Think, yes, I've got some time, but <laughs> yes, it's coming up. So what have you kind of got as far as a vision for yourself? I don't I don't get the sense you're planning on retiring anytime soon here, Ryan. So yeah. is that a fair statement? Uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm <laughs> philosophically opposed to retirement. I'll never retire. My dad yeah. worked till he was 91. He came to the office until wow, really? six, eight weeks before he died. He was still coming to work. So yeah. uh I plan to sort of follow the same if I hopefully if I live that long. But no, there, there's there's too much to uh, too much to, to to do. And I get really excited by you know our, our business, the people, the opportunities that we have. I just get so excited. I've got a little bit of attention issues, and I'm yeah. fortunately it's good. I can be in two offices. We have got a million things going on all the time. But I love. What so we, what do you what, what do, do you like for 2023 though? If we just uh, take it back to yeah, the short yeah, term yeah. here, what do yeah. you like? most excited about trying to accomplish this 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 calendar year yeah from what from business yeah, or business personal? Side. No, from yeah, business yeah, side yeah. yeah for sure so um i mean i touched on it earlier our fraser mills project in coquitlam which is five thousand units we recently got approval on fourth reading so we're constructing the sales center we're starting the marketing getting that out there this is the beginning of what's going to be a 20-year build and, and when in your career do you get to build basically a town there's gonna be eight or nine thousand people living there one day right yeah this amazing. is the start of something so huge. So we have many things we're working on. That's really exciting. I think finishing our Amazon project in South Burnaby, this is our biggest, it's the most expensive per square foot Amazon project in North America. It's a million square feet, three levels on 25 acres, huge uh, job generator, major project in uh, South Burnaby. So on the industrial side, I'm really excited about uh, that. We're also in the Toronto market. We didn't touch up on that. We're across Canada now, so lots of opportunities in building in Toronto. So there's several things to uh, uh, keep Much me, more to grow from much, here. Much, much more to go, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Good, good for you. To finish, you're also a music enthusiast. Yes. You mentioned you had a chance to meet Bono a few times, and you're a YouTube fan. YouTube fan. What's your favorite YouTube song? 
my favorite YouTube song is The Fly from Octung Baby. Um, yeah. Octung Baby is my favorite album. I love guitar. I love rock. Yeah. I'm not as much of a fan of the slower kind of song. I need music to really kind of move me and drive yeah. me. And uh, uh, The Fly uh, or uh, even better than The Real Thing. Something from Octung Baby. Yeah, for that's sure. a great album. Yeah. That yeah. was filmed. Uh, they, they, their videos that they shot for those music videos was all done in Berlin. That's correct. That's yeah, correct. And I think and they recorded the, the album. Whole thing that's in Berlin. right. It's yeah. 100%. Right? Yeah. So it's like you know, a big David Bowie fan. Bowie did three albums and they're. They're huge Bowie fans too, and there's a lot of inspiration and yeah. crossover. There, Do you play so. any music yourself? I played uh, piano growing up, and then I really wanted to play guitar. My dad's like, "Learn the piano first. I think he was a bit too cheap <laughs> to buy me a guitar. I wish he, I wish he had, but I, I don't, uh, I, I don't uh, play much now. But uh, wish I could. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you on Coastal Front today, Ryan. Thank you very much, Ryan Beatty, CEO of Beatty philanthropist, uh, founder of uh, BD Luminaries. Uh, love the work you're doing and a great story. Thank you for being on Coastal Front today. Best Thank of you. luck for 2023. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.